0: And as you're taking your seat, please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We've been walking through the book of James and realize James, the half-brother of Jesus, is likely the author, writing what some have called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It, It reads like wisdom literature. But the goal throughout the book of James is James wants us to understand what living faith looks like. He compares it to everything that is shorter than that or falls short of that, it isn't genuine faith. He shows how genuine faith is necessary in troubled time. Living faith is what He has in mind. So, very, from the very beginning, He shows us that this faith is built in us. And how does God build faith? Well, He uses trials. Verses 2 through 8 told us that we grow in our faith. We have informed faith that brings us steadfastness. We have tested faith it brings us maturity, and that we have wise faith that brings us stability. So, as a wise teacher, then James takes the next two, verse 9 through 11, to give an example of what this faith looks like in the midst of trial. How does it endure trials and temptations, the trial and temptation of poverty, of wealth, of time? It's How are you going to be a steward? That's an area where we're tested in an area where we're tempted in. And now, in our passage today, verses 12 through 16, Paul address, or James addresses this important question for facing trials. How do I recognize when this trial can lead me to a temptation to sin? Follow along as I read James 1, verses 12 through 16, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death." Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that is truth. We pray that You would sanctify us by the truth. Lord, we need this plain truth about trials and temptations because we are faced with them every day. Lord, we need You for we are easily deceived and we don't even know it. Lord, I pray that You would not only shine light on the Word and its truth, but Lord, by Your indwelling Spirit, would You empower us to live out the truths that we hear, that we would stand fast under trials, that we would resist temptation all by Your grace because Your Holy Spirit powerfully works in us because You have sent this Spirit In our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would focus us, uh, enlighten your word, allow us to live it out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's speaking to Christians, he's speaking to beloved brothers because the counsel, the care that he gives for those who are under trials and under temptations really only works for somebody who is a brother or sister in Christ, somebody who is born again, somebody who is a follower of Christ. The advice to handle trials and temptations for somebody who is not a Christian starts with step one, come to Christ. Because facing the trials of this life and the temptations of this life are impossible without Him. So, I'm laying that as the foundation because James does. James is speaking to believers and he's encouraging them how to face temptation and how to handle trials. So, what is temptation? One commentator said Temptation is a seduction to evil, a solicitation to wrong. It stands distinguished from trials. Trials and tests seek to discover man's moral qualities or his character but temptation persuades to evil, deludes that it may ruin. The one means to undeceive, the other means to deceive. The one aims at man's good, making him conscious of his true moral self, but the other aims at evil, leading him more or less unconsciously into sin. God is the one who tries us, Satan is the one who tempts us. Interesting point is that in this passage, seven times, the word trial, test, and tempted, 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 tempts are all the same word, the same family of word. It's only the context of the word's use that allows us to distinguish between what is a test and what is a temptation. Spurgeon says of this God tries men. But the motive of that trial is in which the difference is from temptation. In a temptation, we try a man with a view of inducing him to do wrong. But God tries men to best them that they may, by finding out their weakness, be saved from doing wrong. He never inclines the heart to evil, while he doeth all things and in all things, yet not so that he himself does evil or can be charged with evil. Trials. You face them. I face them every day. No one's immune from trials. We're called to endure trials, and they can include quite often involving something of a loss, a loss of someone or a loss of something, losing something that we love, death, dementia, loss of health or independence, loss of a job, financial loss, loss through the breaking up of a marriage a prodigal child. It also can involve stress and pressure. That happens at work. It happens at school. It happens in our church. It happens in families. Conflict can come. Difficulty can come. Add to that busyness of schedules, and the trials increase, responsibilities, activities. Each of these trials have the potential to lead us into temptation in the way that we respond. We see temptations that we're exposed to all the time. Temptations flow from our selfish desires. The trials are the circumstances of life. The temptations hit us where we're most vulnerable, and that's in our hearts. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Our hearts are idol-making factories, John Calvin says. Our desires get hijacked and run off in wrong directions because of our selfishness. They they take what God desires to be used for good and use it for evil. God's given us a desire for, for pleasure. God's given us a desire for food. God's given us a desire for money, for sex, for entertainment, for how we use our time. But the heart's attitude then is tested. Idolatry can lead us into desires that are sinful, temptation to sin. And then those things begin to control us. Addictions, obsessions overwhelm us, but even the subtle temptations that we all struggle with need to be addressed when they're little before they grow into big problems. White lies, anxiety and worry, complaining, laziness, procrastination, overusing electronics, social media, gossip, overeating. If we hit those when they're small, they don't become as life-dominating as they sometimes can. They don't follow that entire progression of conceiving, giving birth, and being fully grown, leading to death. In this passage, we're going to see that trials, temptations are not the same, and yet God's Word gives us the ways in which we can faithfully face them. Let's look first at how to successfully endure trials. We've touched on this a little bit in verses 2 through 8, but again, verse 12 comes up, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I want us to consider what this kind of rings in our ears from an Old Testament psalm. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The person who remains steadfast under trial is the one who is the blessed man. You remember, Jesus used these beatitudes in His Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the man, blessed is the one. This blessing is for this life now and into eternity. But we can get direction from His Word that when we remain steadfast under trial, there will be blessings that come for us. Now, when James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, remember I told you it would be pretty much malpractice as a Christian to bring that verse up to somebody who's like in the thick of a trial. But that truth ought to start washing over us and starts to transform our perspective and see these trials used by God to make me more like Christ are really a blessing. And they make my life so that it bears fruit, the leaf doesn't wither, and all He does, He prospers. I want to see that in our lives now and that's a, that is a possibility as we remain steadfast. We also see that these trials, in the midst of these trials, we need to remember the promise, which is a crown of life. You see in the second half of the verse, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. We have a promise-keeping God. So when you're in the midst of that trial, God's intention is, in the truth of Scripture, is to get us out from the material, physical, and the here and now, and to really turn our gaze heavenward. This God keeps His promises, and He promises that there's a crown of life for you as you endure this trial, as you remain steadfast under this trial. And so this, when we have stood the test, will receive this crown of life. Now, I want to Make sure that you're not confused about what the crown of life is. In one sense, we can see in um, the word crown a crown of royalty, a crown of riches, of power and authority. That's not the crown that's used here. Uh, This crown is the crown of life. It's the laurel wreath that is given to the one who runs a race. When you complete the race, when you finish the race and you've won, you get this reward. It's not like as a Christian, when I endure trials, I can get all sorts of crowns, and then when I go to heaven, I'll have more crowns than you have. And don't that's not a a good understanding of this kind of future for us. It's the crown which could be translated the crown which is life. The reward is eternal life itself. And the reward is a blessing for us in the here and now. It keeps our eyes to the future that in eternity, which is longer than anything you're facing now, we will receive that blessing. Young or old, we're not that far from entering eternity, are we? As you get older, you realize it's, it's even closer. But as, you, as a young person, focus your eyes on what is eternal, that crown of life that waits for you so that you can be steadfast, so that you can endure trials. He is a promise-keeping God, and His promises are sure. His promises are you can count on it. So, trials make us doubt. Trials unsteady us. Trials make us shaky, but God, the promise-keeping God, is firm, is fixed. We can trust Him Remember the, promise, remember the promise, which is a crown of life. And who has He promised this crown of life to? To those who love Him. I think it's wonderful that James brings in this relationship that we share with this God. God's not just a sovereign, powerful, in-control God who has trials at His disposal to do what He wills and wants. He is all of that, but He's the one who loves you and whom you can love. It transforms your attitude and your perspective on a trial when you know that the person who's giving you that test really loves you. All right, you remember back to high school. Some of you are in it or can look forward to it. When you got a test from that certain teacher, you knew they were out to get you. You knew they didn't like you. They were trying to fail you. They wanted you to flunk the class. No. I mean, we think that as students. I don't know anybody who teaches because they want kids to fail because they don't want them back in their class the next year. I think that's really what the motivation is. No, the truth is the test givers genuinely care for the person because they want them to improve. They want them to pass the tests. Now, the exception might have been the person who did your road test for your driver's license, right? She came with her glasses and a check. Clipboard, and she every time you made a move or didn't make a move, she's getting her pen out. And not. now, it's easy for us to assume motives to persons who give us tests because we don't like them. What I want you to assume about God is what we can know from Scripture. God loves you, and we love Him because He first loved us. So, that crown of life is coming to us because we love Him. Why do we love Him? Because we know He loves us and He's looking out for our good. He wants what's best for us. That can transform your view of the trials. That can help you to remain steadfast. Consider His love for you and love Him in return. Now, the bulk of the passage now deals with how to righteously resist temptation. Let's dig into verse, 30, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, notice it says when he is tempted, not if, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Verse 13 is telling us we can't blame God for our temptations. We can't. God is sovereign. He's ordained all things that come to pass. He uses secondary causes, which we'll talk about in a second, to accomplish His plan. But God can't be blamed for sin. He's not the author of sin, but He is still in control. Uh, some biblical examples. God, when testing Job, had every intention to build Job's faith and to prove that it, he is a man of faith. Calls Satan. Satan reports to God, and God gives Satan permission to test Job. What was, jo- what was Satan's intention for Job not good. He wanted him to fail and to curse God and to die. He wanted everything to go wrong with this, but God is the one that limited and sent Satan to do what he did. We know the same is true with uh, the way in which Jesus was tempted. It says in Matthew 4, then Jesus, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, was tempted by the devil. Who led him to be tempted? The Spirit. God's intention was to bring this temptation. He wanted him to succeed. The devil wanted him to fail. Our Westminster Confession of Faith can help us here a little bit. In, the first, uh, in chapter 3 of God's eternal decree, the first section says that God from all eternity did by His most holy, wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain Whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby he is neither neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. God's not the author of that sin, but he can use his creatures. He can use Satan to bring a test for him. It could be a temptation. Uh, chapter 5 of the Confession on Providence. In section 5, it says, "...the most holy, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chasten them from their former sins, or to discover unto them some hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled." and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself, to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for sundry other just and holy ends. God can even use these temptations for His holy purposes. He's not the one that's doing the tempted. He can't be tempted. He's not tempted with evil, and He tempts no one. But verse fourteen further clarifies: each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Lured and enticed by his own desires. This word "lured" is only used one time, and it's here in the book of James. In the entire New Testament, it's only used one time. It's from a word that means to draw out, and metaphorically, it's it's equivalent to to luring forth. The metaphor is taken from hunting and fishing. As game is lured from its cover, so man by his lust is lured from the safety of his self restraint to sin. So it's a it's a luring, it's a it's a dragging out of from safety to a place of danger. This word enticed, it's used two times in Second Peter and one times in James And it's talking about the bait, the the bait that you put on a hook or that you put in a trap that you set. It's to entice that victim into a moral trap, luring them through their own selfish impulses. The bait didn't put the desire into the, the animal. The bait just revealed what that animal wanted, and it's to entice them in. What are they enticed by? his own desire. Now, we have to be careful with this word desire used throughout the New Testament is sometimes a passion built on strong feelings that could be positive, and in some places, most of the places, it could be nec- negative, where it's, it's translated coveting or lust. This desire, though, is sometimes used for good. In First Thessalonians, uh, the Apostle Paul, in talking about his, his longing to meet face-to-face with the, with the people of Thessalonica, he says that we have endeavored more eagerly with great desire to see you face-to-face. That's a strong desire, but there's nothing sinful about it, okay? Jesus Himself had strong desires. In Luke twenty two fifteen, He says to His disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. So, he wanted to have that Passover meal with his disciples, and he desired it, but it's also used negatively. Quite a bit, it's used negatively. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, there it is in one verse or one set of verses where we see the desires of the flesh for you to sin, the desires of the Spirit for you to live righteously, they're at war. It's Romans 7 all over, right, where Paul says, that thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me for this, this struggle of my desires? Romans 8.1. There is therefore no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Christ settles the score. Christ pays for the sin. Those remaining desires of our flesh, we gotta mortify them. We gotta kill them. And those desires to honor and obey the Spirit, we gotta grow in those and feed those. Now, this luring and enticing. I had lunch this week with a pastor who is passionate about fly fishing. In fact, I got him to to agree to take me out in July to show me how to to do fly fishing. He is part of this uh, group in the Midwest that talks all about tying their own lures, flies. You basically stick a hook and you put string on it and that somehow gets fish to eat it. How do you make a lure looks like a fish hook to me, I wouldn't want anything to do with it, into something that a fish is actually going to eat. Well, he was describing to me that there are certain colors that you use for certain types of fish. I said, oh, this will preach. He said, you take, for example, blacks and purples are going to be used when you tie a fly for, for bass. But if you're trying to entice a, a trout to take that hook, you're going to use more of the reds. So, those temptations… Those lures are designed knowing what that fish's proclivities are, what they're interested in. Yeah, I think our flesh knows that, and we need to know what our flesh desires so that we can crucify it. We know that the, the areas that we're susceptible in, those those areas that, that can become our besetting sins, know what those are for you by knowing what kind of fish you are. Does that make sense? Now, take it beyond that. He says… There's also something else that we like to play to in fish, and that is their curiosity. You see, if you make this fly look exactly like a fly in nature, that's one thing. But if you use some neon color, if you use something that seems unnatural, strange, shiny, the fish says, I want that. It's new, new and shiny. Now, we'd never be guilty of saying, ooh, that's new and shiny. I have to have it, right? The truth is that we are lured and enticed when our flesh or the way the world thinks and, and bombards us with what we should do, or even the, the, the spiritual forces of wickedness seek to deceive us and entice us, but they use things we want. You, you never fall into a temptation out of duty. You do it because you want it. So, how do we fight temptation? I I could say a lot about how to resist temptation, and and I've preached a a sermon in a Gospel Solutions series, Gospel Solutions for for Temptation. If you want to look it up online, you can check that out. But let me leave you with seven ways, seven strategies for you to fight temptation. First thing is, whatever you feed will grow. Whatever you feed will grow. probably about 15 years ago now, I got tired of mowing the grass so much. You know, I used weed and feed all the time. Put the weed and feed down, and then, pff, you know, the the grass is just all over the place. I'm doing it twice a week. Well, I don't like the weeds, but I don't like to mow. What if I just did the weed killer? What if I just killed weeds and didn't feed the grass? So, I did that for a while, and you know what I got? I got along with a bunch of patches that were bare. and when the dandelion uh, seeds were floating through the air and they hit those bare spots, what did they do? Uh, they start to grow. If you only kill the weeds, but you don't feed the grass, you're going to end up weeds in the, with weeds in the end. So feed your positive spiritual growth and not just seek to kill the sin. Do kill the sin, fight the sin, mortify the sin, but also feed your soul with good and righteous things. Whatever you feed will grow. Secondly, align your affections with what is right. Align your affections with what is right. So, this illustration was described to me of a beaker of air. You just have it sitting there. How do you get the air out of that beaker? Well, there's two ways. One is you can hook a vacuum pump on that beaker and use power to pull out the air and you could have a vacuum. You could have no air in this beaker and it could stay that way as long as you keep it sealed up tight. But as soon as you take the seal off, the air comes back in. That's one way to get the air out of a beaker. The other is, take a glass of water and pour it into the beaker. When you fill it to the rim, it displaces all the air. So your affections, I want you to imagine, are like that glass. And Thomas Chalmers, in his book, Expulsive power of new affections. He poses himself a question. How shall the human heart be freed from its love for the world? This love is not a duty one performs. It's a delight that one prefers. It's an affection before it's a commitment. So he says there's two ways you might seek to remove it. By controlling the affections of the heart, one way is to show that the world's not worthy of our affection. It's going to let us down. You could try and get the world out because it's, it's, it's no good. Or the other is to show that God is vastly more worthy of the heart's attachment, thus awakening a new and stronger affection that displaces the former affection for the world, hence the expo- expulsive power of new affection. Align your affections right. Feed your soul. You know, if you want to get a bone from the dog, it's a hard thing, especially if you've got a big dog. But if you give it a stake, that bone is nowhere to be found. We should align our affections with God who is more glorious and more worthy than any of the temporary pleasures that this temptation to sin could give us. Third, you need to saturate yourself with Scripture. We know Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 led by the Spirit into this temptation with the devil. He is tempted in many ways. And each time he says, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. Quoting Scripture back to Satan, grounded in what is true in the Word of God. You know, the sword of the Spirit, it does you no good when it's just dangling at the side. You need to pull it out and have it ready. Meditate on Scripture, memorize Scripture so you can fight temptation. Fourthly, cultivate prayer. We pray every week in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Crying out to the Father to deliver us from evil. Matthew 26, Jesus told His disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then what does He find them? Snoozing, right? And so, we need to be watchful and prayerful. Fifthly, plug into church. Galatians 6 says, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, they, got, they bit on the bait and they got lured in. If they're caught in this trap, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Oh, when, when I fall into tempta- temptation, into sin, come help me. When you fall into temptation, I want to come help you. That happens within brothers and sisters in Christ plug into the church six grab hold of the gospel uh, phil taylor preached from titus 2:11 and 12 at his uh, longer than average uh, sermon at Presbytery. It was wonderful. And what it says in in Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. How do you resist worldly desires and lusts? How do you live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives? Grab hold of grace The grace of God has appeared. God has graciously given you the gift of His Son as as a sacrifice for your sins. He's graciously given us the Holy Spirit to indwell indwell us. It's not about grinding through and fighting it in a sheer sense of the will. It's by God's grace He works in us. He works in us to will and to do His good pleasure. And finally, give yourself to the Spirit. Yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, as I read, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It says later on, The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You may feel today that there's no hope that that same lure, that same temptation has got you again and again and again. You're in that condition of remaining deceived. There is hope for us in fighting these temptations. There's hope in Christ. There's hope in the gospel. There's hope among His people. And I want you to walk out of here with the hope that God transforms your desires as you yield to the Holy Spirit, as you look for the grace that trains you, God will transform. It's bit by bit, slowly. But God is in the business of changing our desires so that what He desires for us is actually our desire. Let's pray. Father, trials and temptations are struggles for 100% of us, Lord, and You know us and our struggles. You know what they particularly are. Uh, Lord, we're, we're not wearing those trials on our sleeve. Those temptations aren't written across our foreheads, but, Lord, You know them. Uh, we, we can't keep them secret from You. Lord, we pray that You would uproot the evil desires in our hearts And would you cause us to yield fully to you because you have loved us with an everlasting love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.